1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16 is our text this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I invite your attention with me to read along in the Bible provided in the seat under the seat in front of you. Turn to page 953. This is our sixth installment in this series on 1 Corinthians, and Paul has not strayed very far off topic, carefully laying a, a foundation by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who has inspired the words of Scripture, as you know, on which he will build the rest of his letter. A wise apostle, he knows that you don't start building a building at the windows. You start with the foundation. You start from the ground up. He started, you might remember, by reminding them and us who we are. That we are saints, sanctified ones, set apart, holy to God. That's who you are in Christ. All of that, of course, not because we have set ourselves apart or made ourselves saints or holy ones, because it is he who has made us so. We are saints, my brothers and sisters. That's who you are in Christ, because that's who God has made you to be. How? How has God made saints out of sinners, out of us? Well, through Christ, and specifically through the cross, through the cross work of Christ, where he has redeemed us, that is, purchased us at the price of his own blood. And so we may not make the grave mistake of boasting in ourselves over this. Paul has reminded us that we were not saved. God did not choose us to save because we were remarkable in some way particularly attractive or smart or, or high-born. Quite the opposite. In choosing us to save, Paul says, God chose the lowly, the low, the despised, even the things that are not, to us, of, of all people, to us, Christ has become wisdom from God. Our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, as we saw last week. So we boast, but not in ourselves. We boast in the Lord who has done this. So the Father has chosen us, the Son has purchased us and become our wisdom. But how does that salvation get applied now to us? How does Christ become our wisdom, wisdom to us who are being saved, especially considering the fact that he and the cross remain folly and foolishness to so many others, to those who are perishing. Well, Paul gets to that in our passage today, but I'll give you a hint. So far, we've seen how two persons of the Godhead have been active in our salvation, Father and, and Son. I don't think you need three guesses uh, to imagine who will make his appearance next. No fair looking at the title of the sermon in the bulletin. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for you to send your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who inspired these uh, words, who inspired the Apostle Paul to, to dictate them, and uh, 
now to illumine them, to open our hearts to receive these marvelous things of your law. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Yet among the mature, and I just paused this one time during the reading to say this, there's been a lot of ink spilled over who are the mature here. I don't want to spend a lot of time uh, unfolding that for you. The one thing you should not imagine, because Paul's letter is so much opposed to this view, is that he's dividing the church into mature and immature groups. I mean, that's the very thing he does not want to do and is trying to avoid doing and stop them from doing in Corinth. So I think the wisest and the, uh, the right way to understand the mature here is uh, by understanding he's speaking to people who are Christians, in whom the Holy Spirit lives. Those are the mature as opposed to the world who do not have Christ. As I say, much more can be said there, but I think that's the right way to understand that uh, designation there. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the spirit, of, the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The world is bent on assigning people to one group or another, isn't it? From our very birth, we're, we're labeled according to our sex and our race. We're a member of one family or of another family. As we grow up, we find out eventually that we belong to a class. Our assigned maybe to a class, upper class, middle class, lower class. Politicians love to exploit those distinctions, don't they, by playing one group against another to generate votes for themselves. We're seeing that in these early days of a presidential election year in spades, aren't we? In fact, I've just recently found myself assigned 
to a particular group by the world. After returning from a private meeting at a, locally, at a local restaurant, I happily reported to Debbie the surprisingly and delightfully low cost of a cup of coffee at that specific establishment. She paused from her work lovingly to turn to me and explain to me that it was no doubt because the teenage server ringing my order simply by looking at me had assigned me to a particular group. That, uh, that group that gets those urgent and frequent mailings from the AARP. The Bible too makes distinctions, doesn't it? I, I don't mean to oversimplify, but ultimately from the scripture's perspective, there are there's basically two groups of people in the world today. And they are these. The natural people and the spiritual people. Everywhere you go at any given time of the day or night, at work, at the park, at school, at the restaurant, at the gym, indeed at the church, you are surrounded by people who are members, ultimately, of one group or the other, natural people or spiritual people. Now, here's the difference. Here's the distinction. Natural people, verse 9, we might also call them unspiritual people, are people who belong to the world. They're unbelievers. They're people whose hearts and minds are held captive to the here and now. They are locked into this time-space capsule, captive to its thinking in which they operate. They follow their natural instincts, the Bible says. And however much they would protest the idea, if you presented it to them in these terms, they are actually spiritually dead. Dead in sin, lost in darkness, they are truly the walking dead. Foolishness in the biblical sense, is the governing principle of their lives. Spiritual people, on the other hand, belong to the Lord. They are believers. They are people whose hearts and minds are captive to Christ, who consequentially operate not only in the here and now, but in eternity. They're not bound by natural instincts. They're slaves to righteousness. In other words, they follow the Lord because they are truly alive, alive in every sense. And wisdom, true wisdom, is the guiding, governing principle of their lives. Wisdom. Paul's been using that term a whole lot here in 1 Corinthians. He uses it in two senses. On the one hand, there is the wisdom of the world, which he says is truly what? Foolishness. That kind of wisdom, God says back in verse 19, I will destroy. That's the kind of wisdom that natural people have. And then there is what the world considers foolishness, which God says is in fact true wisdom. The true wisdom that spiritual people have. But what is this true wisdom? You ask, and how does one get true wisdom, the wisdom that spiritual people have and natural people lack? Well, it's funny you should ask those two questions because they're actually the two points of the sermon this morning. First, 
consider with me the nature of true wisdom. What is it? Well, Paul seems as interested actually in telling us here what it is not as what it is. So first, what it is not, verse 6, it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Let's start with the latter, with the rulers of this age. Who are they? Well, we can understand who they are in verse 6 by looking down at verse 8. They are the ones, Paul says, who were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. So Pilate, Herod, Antipas were some of those rulers on the Roman side who crucified Jesus. On the Jewish uh, level, on the Jewish side, of course, there was a hand in it too. We think of Annas and, and Caiaphas and others. So using verse 8 to understand verse 6, we conclude that Paul has in mind here human rulers whose wisdom is, is ruled out. In all likelihood, Paul is alluding here to every leader who rules without giving glory to God, who rules while ignoring the cause of Christ. They all take their place with these rulers who put Jesus to death. They're all, as Paul says, doomed to pass away. You might bear that in mind, by the way, the next time you catch in the news uh, some news about this leader or that, or aggravated, aggravated by the wickedness of one only to be outraged by the other. Those leaders who are without Christ are doomed. They're here today and they're, they're gone tomorrow. I'm not encouraging you to consider which ones you'd like to belong to that class of gone sooner than later. It's not the rulers, it's not the wisdom of the rulers of this age, it's not the wisdom, Paul says, of this age at all. The predominant wisdom of the age in Paul's day was the wisdom that counted the Roman emperor as God. So, the wisdom of Paul's day was statism, trust in the state, salvation from the government. Pagan philosophers had their version of wisdom too. Now they had their arguments about what is good and virtuous and, and how to get there. But the consensus about what was good, I mean, the consensus rather of the major Greek philosophical schools was that, a, that man was primarily a, a rational being able to ascertain the true and the good and the virtuous by reason, by his human reason, certainly not divine revelation. That would be silly. That, it must be the mind. It must be the rationale of man that is the fountain of wisdom. Human reason and all the more reasonable and believable if it was wrapped in rhetoric and fancy language and arguments. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> Seems not much has changed, does it? This politically charged season in which we're living today is saturated, dripping with statism, isn't it? Democratic or Republican, they, they might as well be, be running for the office of Savior of the United States to hear the rhetoric. And people are looking for salvation in princes and in men. And though... Few in our day are willing to acknowledge that the truth even exists. 
Of this much, modern man is certain if truth does exist, it will be discovered this way. By experimentation and reason. The wisdom of our age, just as it was in Paul's day, is consumed with secular humanistic pursuits centered and utterly dependent upon, may I say it this way, shackled to mere human reason and observation. That's not the wisdom of spiritual people, but natural. They have their reason. They have their confidence in their own powers. The only problem is that, as Daniel Rowland, the great Welsh preacher, once put it, since the fall, reason, like Mephibosheth, is lame in both feet. So what is true wisdom, then? It is two things. It is secret and it's eternal. First, it's secret, verse 7, secret and hidden. Well, that sounds very intriguing, doesn't it? Well, not to unbelievers because they count spiritual things foolishness and a waste of time. That is precisely why to them true wisdom is hidden. It is a secret from them. To us, who are spiritual, it is, it is plain because it's been revealed to us. But more about that in a few minutes. God has hidden it from unbelievers. He's kept it a secret from unbelievers. Second, true wisdom is eternal. Verse 7 again, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This is why true wisdom is, is hidden from unbelievers, from atheists and agnostics. They are bound by time and space. Atheists, agnostics, unbelievers cannot rise above the local or the temporal. They are incapable of doing so. True wisdom transcends space and time and stretches into eternity. Before the ages, God decreed it. And remembering from last time that true wisdom is found at the cross, we begin, just, just begin, mind you, to apprehend true wisdom when we learn that before the earth was made, there was a covenant. There was a covenant made within the Trinity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They, they conspired together, they covenanted together, together for what? Paul says, to glorify us. Now try to wrap your mind around that. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanted before time to glorify you. He had always planned to glorify you, Christian, even before he made Adam, before he created the earth, let alone before he made you. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain when, says the scripture, before the foundation of the world. This has always been the plan of that eternal, everlasting, uncreated God of heaven and earth, your salvation through the cross of Christ. True wisdom knows that and rejoices in that. 
But not only is true wisdom eternal in the retrospective, but in the prospective, that is looking forward. Verse 9, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. True wisdom also perceives what is ahead. Worldly wisdom can't see it. Literally can't see it. It, it says that this life, this this brief existence is all we have. That, that this is all there is. Here is the sum of worldly wisdom with regard to the future. Brace yourself for this, this piece of brilliance. When you're dead, you're dead. That's the wisdom that natural people have. And that natural wisdom is put into practice, as you've seen, by scrambling, as natural people do, to, to make their lives heaven on earth right now because they are certain this is all they get. But true wisdom sees what no eye has seen. True wisdom hears what no ear has heard. True wisdom knows and understands and perceives what no mind has captured. Eternity, eternal bliss that stretches out endlessly before the Christian. Only true wisdom grasps the new heavens and the new earth, even if the prospect of that reality beggars the minds even of, of us who are spiritual. And what staggers me, my brothers and sisters, and what ought to rock you back on your heels too, dear flock, is that it is our glory that God has planned, decreed, predestined, however you like it, from eternity past, and that he will accomplish for eternity future. How could Paul make the difference between worldly wisdom and true divine wisdom any clearer than in this contrast between the glory of Christians and the glory of earthly rulers? Writes the English theologian and clergyman J.B. Lightfoot, Our glory increases while their glory wanes. You know, Mr. Trump may be hogging the limelight for right now. Mr. Obama is scrambling, hard at work, trying desperately to polish a shining legacy for himself. But brothers and sisters, it is you. It is you who reflect God's glory now. And who will sparkle forever as you shine like jewels in his crown. That, my friends, is wisdom. That is true wisdom, all of which is hidden from natural people. They cannot see it, but revealed to spiritual people. Which leads me to the second point, and it is this. Second, how does one get this true wisdom? And the answer is that it is revealed to us. So immediately we're forced to ask another question, aren't we? A different question. Who gives it? Who gives this true wisdom? Well, says Paul in verse 6, and repeats it again in verse 7, we impart wisdom, but, but who is we? 
Well, certainly we includes Paul himself. And in all likelihood, he means to include all of the apostles and all of those who are privileged to preach apostolic truth. It is in the preaching of the gospel, in other words, that this secret, this hidden, this eternal wisdom is imparted. That's why it's so terribly, desperately important that we as Christians attend the preaching of God's word. And yes, it is, it is foolishness. Paul calls it in the last chapter, the foolishness of preaching. Who would have thought that God, the Almighty, the all-wise, the all-powerful God would choose to impart eternal wisdom through weak vessels, through weak pulpits? But for reasons sufficient to him, that's how he does it. Not depending, of course, on individual preachers, for God depends on no one, but through them, just the same. My occupancy of this pulpit preached the mighty Scottish homiletician Alexander McLaren after 40 years of ministry. My occupancy of this pulpit must, in the nature of things, before long come to a close. But the message which I have brought you will survive all changes in the voice that speaks here. You see, it was McLaren's confidence, not in himself, not in future preachers who would follow, but in the Holy Spirit's ministry through the preaching of the word that gave him such certainty. Same for Paul, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. That is, the Spirit of God, the, God the Spirit, knows the deepest thoughts of God. Of course he does. He is himself God, right? One of the three persons of the Trinity, just as we sang this morning. These verses often throw readers into, into some confusion but uh, the concept here is really quite simple. Don't let, it, don't let it throw you. He offers a simple analogy. It's an illustration of what he means in the next verse, verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, what does all that mean? Well, simply this. No one knows... This is Paul's analogy. No one knows your thoughts but your spirit. Most of your thoughts, you know, the thoughts you choose to reveal to others are known, of course, but, but your deepest thoughts are known only to yourself, to your own spirit. As my wife recently reminded me, reminded me, Debbie said, I couldn't get inside your head. I don't know if you husbands have ever heard that line before, but you might bear it in mind with regard to your wives. Wives, maybe you could remember this about for the sake of your husbands, too. I cannot get into your head. Others don't know your thoughts, not all of them anyway. And actually, that's a pretty good thing for you, isn't it? Because if they did, you probably would not have a single friend left in the world. 
Just so the Spirit of God knows the mind, even the deepest thoughts of God. Now here's the wonder. That same Spirit who knows the deepest thoughts of God also lives in you. That Holy Spirit, that same Spirit dwells in you if you are a Christian. And that Spirit, verse 10, reveals wisdom to you. Indeed, verse 12, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given by God. You see that, or, or rather, he is the missing ingredient for those who are natural people and not spiritual people. They have not the Holy Spirit. And having not the Holy Spirit, they have not spiritual wisdom. In fact, they can't even attend the preaching. And yet, or they can attend the preaching and yet, yet remain impervious to the true wisdom, because without the Holy Spirit illumining the word in their hearts, the same word that he inspired when Paul, when the apostles, when the prophets and so on wrote it, that same spirit who inspired that word must also illumine the heart, illumine the word, without whom true wisdom remains incomprehensible, even when it's being preached to them. Even when they're in church listening to the sermon as you are now, hearing they cannot hear, seeing yet they cannot see. Remember the recently converted William Wilberforce's deep desire that his friend, the young prime minister of England, William Pitt, come also into the true wisdom that he himself had received, that God the Spirit had revealed to William Wilberforce. So Wilberforce invited his friend William Pitt to accompany him to hear Richard Cecil, one of the celebrated evangelical preachers of his day, a preacher of great clarity, of great power in the pulpit. The two Williams sat side by side as Cecil preached what Wilberforce thought was a most wonderful sermon on the Christian faith. He was absorbing and drinking in every minute of it. He realized William Pitt had to be affected by what he was hearing. And so he was, he was anxious to know what his friend thought of the sermon and couldn't wait until they've completely left the church to turn to his friend Pitt and asking him what he thought about uh, what he had heard. And Pitt looked back at Wilberforce to his friend and he said, you know, Wilberforce, I haven't the slightest idea what that man was talking about. A message as clear as glass to a spiritual man, William Wilberforce, made absolutely no sense to the natural man, William Pitt. A man, by the way, of no mean intellectual ability himself. Wilberforce had come into true wisdom the only way anyone comes into true wisdom. The only way you can, and that is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Alas, the bright and brilliant William Pitt remained a natural man until he died, a comparatively young man of 46 in 1806. Well, time passes quickly, so what shall we do with, with all of this? Well, let me speak to two of you, two groups if you are lacking spiritual wisdom, 
But perhaps you've heard something this morning, you've, you've recognized something about yourself today in the course of this worship about your sin, about the Savior and his cross, about your desperate need for spiritual wisdom, that you desire to rise above the, the temporal and the local, to grasp the eternal. In some, you want eternal life. Then you plead with the Holy Spirit to grant this light to you today. Perhaps you've under, come to understand for the very first time this morning that the wisdom of this world really isn't wisdom at all, but prejudice and unbelief and rebellion and a refusal to face the facts all wrapped up in an impressive and glossy package then turn to God and plead with him to send his Holy Spirit to you, realizing that, as Wesley put it in verse, no man can truly say that Jesus is Lord unless thou take the veil away. To the rest of you, Christians, spiritual people, my brothers and sisters, I say this. You thank God. Thank God from the bottom of your hearts that he did not leave you in your natural state, that he did not leave you in the darkness, but that he opened your eyes, removed the blinders. He opened your heart to receive true wisdom. What can you say when you're reminded today just how you came into this wisdom? But soli Deo Gloria, Praise be, glory be to God alone for sending his spirit to transform your heart to receive true and spiritual wisdom, the wisdom of the cross of Christ crucified for you. Praise him that you're not leaning today like so many others on the broken reed of worldly wisdom, ignorant to the truth, lost for eternity. This is yours. Lord, I was blind. I could not see in thy marred visage any grace. But now the beauty of thy face and radiant vision dawns on me. Soli Deo Gloria, indeed. Glory be to God. Amen.